pray. Father God, it's good to celebrate this time of year, the coming of your son Jesus into this world. It's a good thing. And so, Lord, I pray that as we continue to make our way toward that night that we celebrate the coming of Jesus, that, God, you continue to teach us, grow us, touch our hearts and our minds with the truthfulness of who you are. And so, Father, I pray that as we turn to your word now and continue to look at the Christmas story through the eyes of the angels and the angel appearances, that, God, you might teach some of us some things we didn't know. Lord, for all of us, uh, may our hearts become impassioned once again to the things that you're about. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I, I know I've said this before. I said it at least the last two Christmas seasons, and some of you didn't like it when I said it back then, but i got to keep bringing it before us, and that is that on that very first Christmas night 2,000 years ago, it really wasn't calm and bright. It was not a silent night. I love the song. We'll sing it on Christmas Eve, and I will have warm feelings in my heart when we sing the song. But the reality is, is that if we buy into that song, lock, stock, whatever, we buy into it completely, then the reality is, is that we would not do justice to the biblical text, especially Luke's story, and what he's trying to convey to you and I happened that very first Christmas Eve. I mean, think about it, folks. Joseph and Mary had to make a two- to three-day trip away from their home in the northern town of Nazareth to a little town five miles south of Jerusalem known as Bethlehem. And even though Mary was nine-plus months pregnant, where most normal people would have never undertaken a trip like that, they had to make it because the Roman Emperor Caesar Augustus, kind of like Hugo Chavez today in personality, had called for a census to be taken, and, and so everybody had to go to their hometown. You had to go to your birthplace. So if you can imagine, wherever you were born, because there's a lot of people in Arizona here that weren't born in this state, if you were forced by the government to go to your hometown, and it was a long trek, and there were no excuses, pregnancy, work, don't want to, you still have to, and that's what Mary and Joseph had to do. And when they got there, because everything was so incredibly packed and busy, with others having to come to Bethlehem as well, again, it wasn't a really silent night, there were no rooms available for them, and for whatever reason, scholars still debate today, they had no family to take them in. We don't know if their family were in their own rooms and just didn't have room, or if for some reason maybe even their family didn't understand this whole virgin birth thing or were kind of embarrassed. We don't know. We just know that there was no family there to take Mary and Joseph in. And so they had to find shelter where the animals did, either a barn or a cave, most likely a cave back then, for Mary to give birth to Jesus. Without a midwife, without friends, without family, without a nice warm bed, staying among animals and hay. That's the picture that Luke paints. And, and, and Luke then tells us that he was placed in a manger. And again, we have sanitized and whitewashed that manger scene today, haven't we? Like you get your Christmas cards and you think, oh, a cute little manger. That is not what Luke wanted us to think. A manger back then was not another word for a bassinet. It wasn't a crib. A manger back then, I think we all know this, was a feeding trough, where I like how one pastor said it years ago in my first church, he said, where minutes before an animal had his big, thick tongue, in that gross, just licking food out of it. 
That's what Luke wants us to perceive or think of and picture when we picture a manger. That's what Jesus had to be placed in. So, So try to picture the Christmas scene without all the whitewashing that we've done today. They're away from home. They're staying in a cave. They're giving birth to their first baby, not even married yet. No comforts like a bed, crib, or nice blankets. And to boot, the only companionship they have up to this far in our story are barnyard animals that are certainly not like our domesticated dogs and cats today. That's the first Christmas scene, folks. And though I'm sure that Mary and Joseph were trying to keep in mind the amazing declaration and promises that God had spoken to them earlier through the angels, you have to believe that at the very least, this was not the setting that they were expecting the Son of God to come into the world through. you got to believe Mary and Joseph were thinking that. That when the angels said to them that you're going to be used by Almighty God to bring His Son into the world to be the Savior of all humankind, that they weren't thinking of a cave in the middle of the night in Bethlehem, lonely and without family or all the comforts of home. And yet, all of that was about to change. Because God, who's always up to something, who's usually working behind the scenes in profound ways that we don't see, was doing something that would change that initial Christmas scene from black and white into technicolor. And he was working through a a group of unlikely people, I mean a group that no one back then would have guessed would be God's chosen ones to first see and experience the coming of Jesus into this world. And so let's read what happens next as we continue in our look at the angel appearances in this series. I'm going to be reading from Luke chapter 2 beginning at verse 8. Luke chapter 2 beginning at verse 8 and then I'm going to read up through verse 14 and then we're going to finish the text as we go along this morning. And so dial in to this. Look up here on the screen if you don't have a Bible in front of you. It says, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among among with those with whom he is pleased. Now, folks, I got to tell you, if you were hearing that or reading that for the very first time, 2,000 years ago, your response as a good Jew living in that culture would to say this is both wild and utterly astonishing. I mean astonishing. Joseph and Mary alone in a barn or a cave giving birth to the Savior of the world that as we're going to see next Sunday if you come to church is God come in the flesh to give us complete and full forgiveness of our sins. And who is it? that God decides to first invite to the baby shower a bunch of shepherds. A bunch of shepherds. I mean, when people tell me that the Bible is a bunch of made-up stories, a bunch of myths, I tell them it just can't be. Because if somebody was going to make up a story about God coming to earth, he wouldn't have them born in a cave, and I promise you nobody would even think to invite shepherds. 
Again, today, we think it's just awesome because we've been so uh, immersed in the Christmas story. We got our little kits, you know, and the wood carvings, and we got them out in front of town hall, and we get the Christmas cards and all this. So we think, isn't it quaint? Isn't it wonderful? Shepherds are just normally a part of a scene like that. Not in the first century. You see, folks, back then, shepherds were not thought of highly by most good Jews at all. In fact, most Jewish religious leaders in the first century had a very low estimation of shepherds. They, were, in fact, were forbidden from witnessing in a court of law because many of them were dishonest in their jobs as they allowed other sheep to graze in other people's pastures. And so I like how one historical Bible expert sets it straight. He says, and I quote, they were on the bottom of the social scale in Israel being poor, burly, rough, and dishonest. Those were shepherds in the first century. And so when it says that an angel first appeared to the shepherds in the field, i got to tell you, this would be of a shock and surprise to any good first century Jew. And the question they would ask, at the very least, would be why? Why would God choose shepherds to reveal the coming of Jesus into this world very first? Why would God do that? I mean, why would God not choose some of the religious leaders who had been waiting for years for this kind of appearance? Say a Pharisee who, who had lived an ultra-moral lifestyle in, in waiting for God's appearing. Or a zealot who'd been fighting against Rome and Greece, championing the things of God. Or how about an Essene who, who were the group of people that retreated from culture back then to live holy and set-apart lives waiting for the coming Messiah? I mean, think about it. God had his choice of all these spiritual quarterbacks that he could have used or could have revealed the coming of Jesus into this world very first, and he chose the water boys. And the question that you and I need to ask, and I really need you to wrestle with this, is why? What is God trying to tell us? As Luke paints this scene, what is he trying to reveal to you and me about the significance of the shepherds. And I believe that the answer to this query is profound and life-changing. I only got two points for you this morning. I usually have three. And the first of two points is simply this. You don't want to miss this. And that is that God is continually calling seekers to Jesus. And that's why the story highlights the shepherds. Why did God choose shepherds to a first appear to and invite to this party for Jesus? Listen, because they were seekers on par with the same tax collectors and sinners that Jesus would go on to hang out with for most of his adult life. They were the ones who needed God the most, and God is continually reaching out to seekers through his son, Jesus Christ. If you're not convinced, I want to show you with a little bit of an in-depth look at this text how this is so clear when you understand what is going on here. So let's look at verses 10 and 12 again, and you'll start to see what I mean. It says, And the angel said to them, meaning the shepherds, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. As I do almost every week, I, I try to highlight certain key words or phrases in the text that will help us really get kind of the flow of the narrative and the meaning here. So you'll notice on the second line there that I highlighted good news of great joy. Good news of great joy. Simply put, God is now here in this little baby. 
come to bring us into a vital relationship with himself. He's the Savior. Savior of what? Savior from our sin that keeps us from God, all the crud inside each one of us that we know exists and gets in the way of a relationship with God. Jesus came to redeem us, to save us from our own sin and bring us into a great, powerful relationship with God. And when you think about it, who better to appear to first and announce this news to first than those who know that their daily lives are steeped in sin? And these shepherds did. I'm telling you, one thing they wouldn't argue with is that they were moral misfits. One thing they didn't argue with is that they were rough and burly and the kind of men who knew the the deeper, darker, more tough side of life. They knew that they were sinners. And so you got to believe that when the angels said, good news, great joy, that at least their ears perked up and they would look up and say, well, that sounds kind of good. And the point is, is that I believe all human beings deep down long for God this way. I think all human beings know that deep down something isn't right inside of them. Are you guys with me on that? Again, especially in a town like Scottsdale. I mean, as I said last week, I love this town, but, but this town does such a good job of trying to cover up some of the nastiness of life, some of the nasty things that we all have to deal with in life, because you got resorts and wealth and nice streets and good, good services and all of that. But the reality is, is that even in a place like Scottsdale, the average person, I think, when they're honest with him or herself, admits that something is not right inside. And you can never get away from that. As Keith Green saying years ago, you can run to the end of the highway, but you're not going to find what you're looking for. Why? Because you're at the end of the highway. And the problem is not with culture. The problem is not with society. The problem is with us, each of us individually. And so I find that no matter what kind of exterior a person puts out or what kind of pseudo-rational arguments they might give me against God's existence or no matter what kind of trumped-up questions people come up with or even the seemingly content lives that people want to say they're living, if you haven't found Christ yet, you're not home. And these shepherds knew that they were not home. And so then look at verses 13 and 14. This is really cool. It says that the angel announces this great call for them to seek Jesus. We'll see what that means in a minute. And then it says that a great multitude of angels appeared and that they sang, Glory to God in the highest, on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Anybody here know what a a great multitude is? The the scholars try to, to guess at that. And their best guess is that in the original Greek, it means hundreds of thousands. So imagine the night sky there filled with hundreds of thousands of angels singing together in unison, glory to God in the highest, on earth peace among those whom he's pleased. In other words, God is saying to these shepherds, I'm doing all of this. I'm the one sending Jesus. I'm the one redeeming humankind. I'm bringing glory and honor to myself in the process of all of this. And as a byproduct, if you guys buy into this and follow me, you're going to have peace. And you've got to believe that interested the shepherds as well. Please don't miss what's happening here, folks. It's God calling seekers to himself in and through his son Jesus. Right out of the starting chute, God says, I think I'll call some seekers. And I think the practical point then for you and I, before we move on to point two, is that we need to recognize that if God is God and he is, then he must still be in the business of calling seekers to himself today. Amen? 
Let's take another run at that. If God is still God, and I think he is, then he must still be in the business of calling seekers to himself today. Amen? Amen. I, I mean, I find today that God uses all different kinds of ways to bring seekers into a right relationship with him. That if somebody truly wants to know God, as I did as a lost 16-year-old, if somebody truly says, God, I think you exist, I think, but I want to know you, and with a pure heart begins the seeking process, I believe the promise that you and I can give them is that if they seek and seek and seek, they will find. They will find. Stephen Ramona, you're with me? I believe that. So look at Jesus' words. Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 8. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Here it is. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks it will be opened. Uh, Paul the Apostle said the same thing when he was talking to a bunch of Greek seekers uh, in Acts chapter 17. And then he's speaking of all humanity and he says this, that they should seek God and hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him yet he's actually not far from each one of us for in him we live and move and have our being even as some of your own poets have said for we are indeed his offspring and then just to show you God's heart for the lost people around you or maybe for you if you're that way today second Peter 3 9 the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness but is patient toward you not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Do you get the point? Whether it's through an internal restlessness of one's heart, or a particular circumstance that somebody goes through that wakes him or her up, or through the influence even of loving family and friends who are a consistent witness, or even through the epiphany of an angel, God is continually calling seekers to his Son, Jesus Christ. That's what the shepherds show us, that God has a heart for lost ones, and he doesn't give up until lost ones come home. You know, as many of you know, I, I quote often the author C.S. Lewis, and one of the reasons that I love Lewis is just the reason I quote him so often is because he had a, a brilliant way of making very complex things simple. He was a reductionist par excellence. He was that way before he was a Christian when he was teaching at Oxford University at Magdalen College. He could take lofty literature and make it so that the students could understand what was going on. And then he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, which have become books or stories that are for children as well as for adults. And then when Lewis became a Christian, we'll talk about that here in a second, he was able to take lofty theology and difficult philosophical concepts and make it for the everyday person, like in his book Mere Christianity. And I love that about Lewis. Second thing I love about Lewis, and it's one of the reasons I quote him so often and read him, is because his testimony of how he became a Christian is so real and so raw. And I love telling the story. C.S. Lewis was, was born uh, back at the turn of the last century. And through most of his early years, say up to the age of 13, he, he went to church every Sunday, like many of you that grew up in a church home. And yet he wasn't impressed. He called it a chore and a duty. And there was very little faith involved in it for him. In fact, when he was 13, because of the pain and suffering in this world, and he couldn't reconcile that with how a good God could allow pain and suffering, at the age of 13, Lewis decided to become an atheist. Can you imagine that? Age 13, said, I'm an atheist. And that existed until he was 31 years old. So all the time he did his graduate studies to the time he became a professor, he was an atheist. 
And during that time, he'd read some Christians. He liked George MacDonald and his Christian fantasy writings. He liked G.K. Chesterton as a poet and, and a writer himself. And he'd be challenged by these guys, and God would chip away a little bit at his rough exterior. But it was really through his friendship with a guy named J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings, which we became popular in movie form this last decade, that, that God really started to work in C.S. Lewis's life. You see, they'd go out on a regular basis and have a beer and talk about God and spiritual things. And when they did, Tolkien would consistently just bring up the cogency of the Christian worldview and of following Christ. And Lewis would push back on multiple occasions, but eventually, through his friendship with Tolkien, through his reading of Chesterton, through his own seeking process, we'll talk about what that means in a second here, God finally was getting a hold of C.S. Lewis. And in his early 30s, he writes about his conversion experience. Looking back, he writes this in his book, Surprised by Joy. And I find it actually humorous because he was actually intellectually convinced of the claims of Christ before his heart was ready to be given to Christ. Can some of you relate? In other words, he knew it was true before he was ready to really give his life over. And so look at what he says about his conversion experience. This is so cool. Look up here on the screen. He says, you much, must picture me alone in that room in Magdalene, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him who I so earnestly desired not to meet. He says, that which I greatly feared had last come upon me. And then he says, look up here on the screen, in the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God and knelt and prayed, perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. <laughs> you got to love a conversion like that. He was saying, I, I really didn't want to give my life over to God. And yet God, kind of like Paul the Apostle, when you remember in Acts chapter 9 when he says, are you kicking against the goads? You know, you're like a mule that's being prodded on, but you're kicking back. How long are you going to continue to kick? See, as Lewis said, I'm going to stop kicking against the goads or I'm going to give in, but there's a part of me that's still wrestling. Some of you are there even today. That night, actually, Lewis became a theist. He would write later that it was two years later that he became a Christian. He knelt and prayed that night, but that was just a conversion from atheism to theism. It was two years later that he became convinced that Jesus Christ was truly the Son of God come into this world to save him from his sin. And he writes about that in his book, Mere Christianity. But one of the things I love about Lewis's story is that it just reveals to us in contemporary form that God is constantly calling seekers to himself. I mean, Ravi Zacharias is one of the foremost apologists today writes about his own story and how being born in India in an upper-middle-class environment, he eventually had so much angst about life he wanted to kill himself, and God called him into the kingdom. But we had baptisms here, over 50 of them, just a couple of weeks ago, and I was moved in the evening service as a couple had accepted Christ here at our church just a few months earlier. Now we're coming into the waters of baptism to confess their faith. Or how about the fact, and this church has been really good at this, and I think a God-honoring way, the fact that we have a lot of little ones who were born into this church, born into Christian families, and because of what one author calls multi-generational faithfulness, there was a good witness passed down to these kids raised in loving Christian homes, and now we've got a whole church filled with lots of families 
that, that, that go way back, in which we have grandparents and parents and grandkids and now even great-grandkids in the same church. You've got to believe God's honored with that. But that's God calling people into this kingdom in a myriad of different ways. Why the shepherds? Don't miss this, folks. Because it reveals something to you and me about God's core agenda in sending Jesus, and that is that his heart beats after lost ones. He longs to call wayward sons and daughters home and lost sheep back into the fold. He is continually calling seekers to Jesus. That's the significance of the shepherds and this angel appearance. And once you and I get this, the only question that we should be asking is, well, how does this work? I mean, all of us have seekers in our lives. We might be spending Christmas with some of our lost friends or family this year. Maybe you're even a seeker here today. So what's the process for seeking that eventually leads to finding? What pathway or journey does God lead us on? And believe it or not, the shepherds show us. So in the few minutes we have remaining here this morning, I want to show you in a nutshell what the shepherds reveal to us, and it's simply this. Look up here on the screen, and that is that God wants us to seek, to see, and to surrender. That's the process of conversion. That's the process of coming into a relationship with Christ. We need to seek him. We need to see and experience him. We'll get to that in a second here. And then we need to surrender our lives to him. And so notice how it all begins there in the middle of this whole setting in verses 15 to 16. It says, when the, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Now, the problem with reading the Bible is that sometimes we read a narrative like that and we think, okay, I get it, what's next? One of the good things about studying the Bible is when you pause and slow down and take a look at what some of those phrases mean. And so notice that I put them for you in yellow there. When it says that they said to one another, the NASB Bible says they began to say to one another, and the connotation is, is that they started a conversation that continued all the way through the seeking process. So what most Bible experts point out is that they were so enamored with the words of the angel that that kick-started their seeking process and they started to talk amongst themselves, talk with even others, as we'll see in a second here, about this Jesus whom they were seeking. And then it says that they would go over to Bethlehem. The connotation there is that they made a straight beeline for Bethlehem. They didn't stop at Grandma's house for a hot chocolate. They didn't stop at Circle K for a Slurpee. They went right to Bethlehem. So they weren't half-hearted, casual seekers. They were intent on finding the answers to the questions that they had based on this angel appearance. And then to be sure, it says they did so with haste. In other words, they did so in an expedient fashion. They were going to get to Bethlehem. And so please don't miss that what this is showing us when you add up continually talking about it, going in a straight intentional line without dawdling or hesitating, is that they were intent on finding what they were seeking. They were seeking in such a way that they were going to find. And that's instructive for all of us here today. Whether you're a seeker yourself or whether you have seekers in your life, encourage them to not be half-hearted about their seeking encourage them that they don't know what tomorrow will hold they don't know what their life will be like and so this is not some half-baked scheme that you're concocting here in your life this is you seeking the almighty god 
and to care enough about your soul and your own life to be committed to the seeking process and to not stop until you find. These rough, burly, not-so-moral shepherds left their fields. They left everything in order to seek out this Jesus, and it's the first step in the process. You've got to be serious about seeking. Now, it obviously doesn't stop there. Notice a second crucial part of the seeking progression, and that is the seeing part. So look at verses 16 to 18. This is really cool. It says, And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. Now here it is. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. I love that phrase, when they saw it. Kind of like Doubting Thomas. They weren't going to believe unless they could see and experience this Jesus themselves. They didn't just take the word of the angels. They went and saw and experienced the coming of God into this world. They checked out the sign that was going to be given to them in Jesus. And notice that this seeing, this experiencing of him, was so convincing that it says that they made known this to others. Again, scholars don't know exactly what this means. Some argue this was obviously subsequent to this event, so it was afterward as they were heading back to their fields, they were telling everybody about Jesus. But some even argue that right then and there they made known this, because the context isn't clear, that they went right into Bethlehem and said, you guys don't know what you're missing. God is being born here right now. Come and see. Which, by the way, if that's true, we got to add a lot more people to our manger scenes, don't we? I mean, again, if that's true, then there's more of a party than we realize because these shepherds had started to experience Jesus and they were making it known. And I love it when they says, and they wondered at it. That's a profound word. And that word wonder here simply means to be astonished. And it assumes that in this astonishment, people would continue to seek because they're very, very close to finally understanding Jesus. This is the same word that the gospel writers would use over and over again when Jesus would teach or heal in his adult ministry to say and the people wondered or were astonished at his teaching or ministry. Don't miss this, folks. The shepherds and the people did not stop in their seeking progression at just going to church or having a water cooler conversation about religion. No, they followed up their seeking with the kind of investigation that would see and experience him. It's the kind of seeking that sees, and as we're going to see in just a second here, when you see, you will find. I I called my brother Pete yesterday. He's a year younger than me. I've only got two boys in our family, myself and my brother, and we've got an older sister. Pete lives in Grand Rapids. He's got two uh, young girls, one high school, one middle school age, and then a son in college. So I called him to see what he wanted for Christmas, and he was out having breakfast with his wife, Lori, and the two girls, and and I said, I don't want to hold you long, but I just, you know, we'll know what you want for Christmas. Last year I gave you a Netflix subscription. You want me just to continue that? And, and he's such a character. He said, well, is that all I get or is there more than that? <laughs> I said, times are tough. We got kids in college. You're lucky to get that. And he said, well, let me ask the family and I'll call you back. And then he called me back a little bit later. And it's like so many people, he said, you know what? We're hardly using the thing. Thought we would, but even at you know, 10, eight, 10 bucks a month, you know, it's a, get me something else. So we discuss what I'll get him. Every time I talk to my brother Pete, I'm almost in tears. He doesn't even know it. But I'm almost in tears because I became a Christian 30 years ago in 1981. And for a decade and a half, like some of you, I just bugged my brother like crazy about becoming a Christian. 
And my brother's a lot like my dad. He's kind of deistic, kind of a, a mix between an agnostic and a deist, very scientific, and he's allowed a lot of that to obscure his view of God. And so Pete would just have no interest at all in spiritual things through all the 80s and then halfway through the 90s. And he finally moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan. And honestly, I got—I mean, for those of you in Grand Rapids, I apologize to you because when he moved to Grand Rapids, I thought, well, this is going to stink. I mean, there's all these Dutch Reformed people. They're going to turn them off to Jesus like you never saw. And I couldn't have been more wrong because my brother tells a story. When he got to Grand Rapids, he said everybody he met was a church-going person. And he said it really sparked his thinking that maybe he's missing out on something. And so he started going to church and he joined a Bible study. And for nine months, God bless my brother's church, they, they, they journeyed with Pete, they answered all his questions, they, they didn't push him, they just loved him. And I'll never forget, after nine months, he called me up on the phone, he said, Jamie, it's Pete. He said, did you know that Dad doesn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus? <laughs> I go, well, duh, yeah. I'm like, what family were you raised in? Yeah, we weren't taught that. He goes, I can't believe Dad doesn't believe in the resurrection. I said, do you? He said, oh, yeah. He said, I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And I was like, praise God. It was just an amazing year, 1995. I remember like it was last year. But one of the things my brother taught me is the power of seeking. Up until that point, he had no interest in spiritual things. It's a spirit thing. It's the Holy Spirit. But as the Holy Spirit started to nudge him, now this might be important for you, he, he heard that call and he began seeking. And he began talking to people, asking right questions, reading the Bible, reading books himself. And just like Jesus promised in Matthew chapter 7, if you seek, you will find. And my brother sought, he saw, and then he eventually found. I love how G.K. Chesterton would say it, years ago, he looked up here on the screen, this is a great quote, you're going to want to write this one down. He says, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting, it has been found difficult and left untried. And I think he's right. I think the great problem in our Western world today, when it comes to people and their very bland relationship with God, is the fact that not that they've tried and found God wanting, but that they really have found the Christian life difficult well, just to find that in a second here, and therefore left untried. I, I think that's the greatest challenge we can give people today, to realize that though the Christian life of following Jesus is not a cakewalk, that if you try it and truly try it, if you become a follower of him, you will find him not wanting and you will not be wanting, that God delivers. And so the question I want to leave you with is why would Chesterton say that Christianity is difficult? Why do you think he says that? Why do you think he says that the Christian ideal, which he simply means the Christian life, is a difficult life? And I think the answer is pretty clear, and that is because the Christian life involves surrender. It involves you surrendering the rights of your life, the rights of your flesh, all your hopes, your dreams, whether they've been dashed or come true, it involves you surrendering it all to Jesus Christ. Look at verses 19 to 20, you'll see what I mean. It says, but Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, and the shepherds returned, now here it is, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. That's them finding. The shepherds found what they were seeking. They found that little baby. They knew that baby was God come for them. 
And in so doing, don't miss it, it says that they were glorifying and praising God. That word glorify means to lift up. That word praise means to lavish worth upon. And so they were basically saying more important than our jobs, more important than our fields, more important than our families, is the fact that God is now upon us. That God is now here in Jesus Christ. And I believe that this is the conversion of the shepherds here. That their whole seeking process began in the fields with the words of the angel and then culminated here in the manger scene when they left glorifying and praising God for what they had seen. In other words, they surrendered to him. They sought, they saw, and they surrendered. God now had first place status in their lives. Jesus would go on to say it this way in his adult ministry. Forever would save his life, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in return for his soul? You see, folks, what Jesus is getting at is if for you and I to experience the blessing, love, and activity of God in our lives, you've got to give your life over to him. And there's no other way. And that's why, by the way, there are plenty of people in pews today in churches that have yet to really experience God. They got some good doctrine. They attend a Bible study. They give generously of their funds. They're nice to people in church. But in their heart of hearts, they know they've never really surrendered to Him. They've never given their lives over to Him and said, my life is yours, yours and mine. I'm hidden in Christ. All that I am is yours. I tried to live the first two years of my Christianity that way. That's for a whole other story. But I tried to live the first two years of accepting Christ by basically saying, okay, I'll let you in a little bit. I believe, kind of. And all I know is that you are the most miserable of person when you're in that place. I've talked to too many people, even here in the last four years, that have said to me, Jamie, when you talk like that, for years that has been me, and then over the last four years we've seen some amazing transformation of God in the hearts and minds of people. So if that's you today, I simply ask you this. What's it going to take? What's it going to take for you to surrender your life to Jesus Christ? Here's what I do know, and don't escape this. It's a choice. It's a choice you can make. You're made up of three things inside of you, emotion, thoughts, and will. And one of them is fighting, if not all of them, you surrendering to God. I get that. But you have control over your emotions, thoughts, and will, more so than you believe. And God has wired you to be the kind of person that if you choose to surrender your heart, if you choose to give your heart to another, then it will be done. You did that on your wedding day. You've done it with good friends over the years. And God wants you to do it with Him. He wants your life surrendered to Him so that you might walk away from the Christmas story glorifying and praising Him as well. What's it going to take? God is continually calling seekers to Himself. He is then, He was then, and He is now. And God wants us all to seek, to see, and to surrender. Troy's going to come out right now, and he's going to lead us in a, in a chorus of angels we have heard on high as he also explains our elders' fund offering to us. But before we do that, I want you all to bow right now with me. Every head bowed here right now. And, and as your heads are bowed, I want to pray with a couple of groups of you. First, I want to pray with those of you who are ready to see and find for the very first time. You're ready to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. 
And then I want to pray with those of you who might be ready to re-surrender or to surrender fully your life to Christ. And so every head bowed, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you that a simple story that most of us have heard since we were little ones can contain profound, life-changing truth for us today. Lord, the reality that in the shepherds is not just a quaint story of some people with robes going to see Jesus, but it's a real and raw and gritty story of normal people finding Jesus and finding their satisfaction in him. And so, Lord, if we relate to the shepherds at all here today, God, I pray that we'd be the type of men and women who seek and see and then surrender to you. And so, Lord, if I don't miss my guess, there might be some here today that have been seeking for a while, like my brother Pete, or like me 30 years ago, and, Lord, the light has become known to them, and they're ready to receive Jesus Christ for the very first time. And so I pray, God, that where they sit right now, in a surrendered way, they give their lives over to you. They recognize their sin, they know you are their Savior, and they receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior for the first time today. Father, there's others of us here today, too, that have played games long enough when it comes to our spiritual life. God, we, we, we do the church thing really well. We put on a good front, but our hearts are cold. and Our lives are unsurrendered to you. And Lord, today is a good day to surrender. And so Lord, even right where we sit right now, we ask you to hear the cry of our heart. And that's the heart that really wants to find our satisfaction and our sufficiency in you. And so we surrender in this moment, giving you control and reins of all that we are. God, I think of Galatians 2.20 where it tells us that our life is Christ. End of story. And I pray, God, that that would be true for each one of us. Thank you that you're God of grace and that you hear our prayers. Receive our last song of worship. Now we pray as we give generously in Christ's name. Amen.